Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors. Policy Pack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also by Liquidware, the creators of Profile Unity, FlexApp, and Stratosphere UX, the premier UEM app layering and visibility solutions. If you enjoy the show each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. BleepingComputer.com reports this week that Microsoft have issued guidance on how to mitigate a DNS cache poisoning vulnerability reported by security researchers from the University of California and Tsinghua University. It said that successfully exploiting the vulnerability could allow attackers to use modified DNS records to redirect a target to a malicious website under their control as part of DNS spoofing. It continues that this malicious DNS record can be cached by the DNS forwarder or the DNS resolver. With spoofing, attackers could redirect users to a custom landing page, say, for phishing purposes, and infect the machines with malware. Labeled as CVE-2020-25705 and nicknamed SADDNS, which the SAD stands for Side Channel Attacked, DNS, I guess the D in SAD is a bit of a stretch, but it's reported that this affects Windows Server platforms between Server 2008 R2 and Windows 10 version 20H2 server core installation. There are two mitigations. One is a registry setting to change the maximum UDP packet size to 1,221 bytes, which would block any DNS cache poisoning attacks attempting to exploit it on vulnerable devices, or you can simply install the December patches. This vulnerability has not received the most severe rating, but it is still up there in terms of severity. And speaking of Windows patches for December, the December patches are out. This patch Tuesday brought fixes for 58 vulnerabilities. Nine are classified as critical, 48 as important, and two as moderate. The vulnerability I just covered in the last story was classified as important. There are no zero days disclosed in this month's vulnerabilities that were fixed. While patches cover a wide variety of products, bleepingcomputer.com reports that some of the other notable fixes include for CVE-2020-17095, which is a Hyper-V remote code execution vulnerability and allows malicious programs running in a Hyper-V VM to execute code on the host. There's dash 17096, which is a Windows NTFS remote code execution vulnerability, which can be exploited locally to elevate permissions or remotely by SMB version 2 to execute commands. And also, finally, the Windows lock screen security feature bypass vulnerability, which allows a local attacker to execute commands from a locked Windows device. So obviously, while there are no zero-day vulnerabilities, remote code execution vulnerabilities are pretty nasty too. And as always, even with the holidays coming up, 
You'll want to get your testing completed as soon as possible and get those systems patched. And tune into the podcast next week and in future episodes, as always, I hope you do. Because obviously more people are going to be deploying these patches to their pilot groups and any issues that may arise from installing these patches tend to get reported in like the third week of the month. And I'll cover that in the podcast. This week saw the last scheduled release of Flash Player. It will no longer be supported after December 31st and Adobe will block Flash content from running in Flash Player beginning January 12th. While it may be a headache for some IT admins in environments where they've got legacy apps to rely on Flash Player, it's probably going to be a huge sigh of relief for InfoSec teams as Flash Player became quite the target for attacks in the past. Personally, when I was in college, I did a project that was uh, based on Flash and ActionScript. So it's always going to have a place in my heart, even though it was a real pain in the butt because I believe the version of ActionScript, I can't remember what version it was, it didn't have a proper compiler. So I was printing out pages and pages of ActionScript code and bringing them into my job. I was working in a toy store at the time so that I could manually go through line by line while on my lunch break. So pour a 40 on the curb for Flash Player. Huge congratulations to ControlUp and Avacy. It was announced this week that ControlUp has acquired the company who specialize in management of remote endpoints, which obviously is becoming much more important for organizations with a huge push to work from home. It's been a bumper year for ControlUp, who recently received $27 million in funding. They've doubled their workforce this year, and they released their Scalpies product. And now, obviously, their first major acquisition, which could be a very important company and feature set for them to acquire and integrate into their already great real-time monitoring and automation products. Working for a ControlUp customer, I'm really looking forward to seeing how we can leverage this to get better visibility of any issues that may be presenting for our large remote user base. Remember a few months ago when I covered a story about a zero-click wormable code execution vulnerability in Teams that Microsoft said was by design at the time and was not something they were going to fix, but then later they addressed it in a fix in October. Well. This week, a pretty comprehensive breakdown of the vulnerability was published on GitHub with some GIFs and illustrations and examples of it using the vulnerability to execute a payload. The original story was already pretty descriptive on how you could do it, but this update on this episode is that there's this information that's been posted for all to see and it's very comprehensive. Teams is an app that constantly updates, so if you have been updating, good on you. If not, It's a good time to patch because this is out there in the public domain. Interestingly, the post in GitHub contains a section that says some information that was in the original post was redacted as requested by Microsoft. So I wonder what that was. Could speculate that maybe there's still something there that could be exploited. Of course, that's just speculation on my part. 
The Guardian has reported on the outcry from people about Microsoft's productivity score feature in Microsoft 365, stating it is tantamount to workplace surveillance. The core use case of the productivity score service is said to be at the organization level, where administrators can use it to see technical information about their network and also to understand how employees are using features such as chat services and scheduling tools. But the information could also be viewed on a user by user basis, potentially allowing managers to identify individual employees who weren't contributing enough are using tools in the correct way. In a statement, Microsoft has said that they value employees' privacy and plan to remove individual usernames from the feature, stating, quote, no one in the organization will be able to use productivity score to access data about how an individual user is using apps and services in Microsoft 365, end quote. The Guardian even featured a tweet from Microsoft legend Jeffrey Snover in which he said, quote, the thing I love most about Microsoft is that when we screw up, we acknowledge the error and fix it, end quote. It wouldn't surprise me if this was put in there to enable employers to gauge actual productivity for performance review purposes, rather than for administrators to see the health of their systems and to measure productivity based on end user experience and you know what the desired productivity is and maybe there's issues with the system or the network causing the productivity issues you know rather than putting the onus on well are our tools and our network working as well as they should be to ensure productivity it could also have just been a sly way to enable managers to view the productivity of their end users and these types of features are becoming very popular now with so many working remotely out of view of their managers. But I will say I think it's great that Microsoft are willing to step back from this. There are going to be some other vendors out there who make these tools that are akin to spying on your workforce when they're working from home. I mean, you could debate whether or not that's an invasion of privacy since they're possibly using a work laptop provided to them and they're on work time. But it really gives me the heebie-jeebies. Personally, I think that strong managers shouldn't be that concerned with measuring the minutes and hours. They should be concerned with results and also that if they have good hiring practices, they should be getting reliable people that they don't have to micromanage and keep under a microscope like this. So either way, good on Microsoft for stepping back from this. Citrix's Microsoft Teams optimization is now available for macOS users. If you'd like the crystal clear quality in your Citrix session from a Mac, you will need to install Citrix Workspace app version 2012 and run at least macOS Catalina. In a story that got a lot of mainstream news attention this week, the New York Times reported that FireEye, a security company who have been relied on in the past by the U.S. government and others for identifying attackers and helping to protect against potential attacks, have themselves fallen victim to what has been called a highly sophisticated attack from a group they have said is from a nation with top-tier offensive capabilities. It's reported that taken in the attack was the company's red team tools, which they use with organizations' permission to find vulnerabilities within their network. 
With these tools, it's possible the attackers will repurpose them for their own nefarious needs and potentially launch attacks with them, or at least with the information they discover by using them. While it has not been confirmed which nation the attackers are from, the FBI has turned the case over to its Russia specialists. Unfortunately, this could be a story that has tentacles. We can expect future stories on the podcast emanating from this breach. So stay tuned for that. Bleepingcomputer.com has reported that Kmart in the United States has been hit with the eGregor ransomware. For those not familiar with Kmart, they used to be a popular and widespread chain of stores in the United States, but they now only have about 35 stores remaining. It is reported that the stores continue to be operational. eGregor is known for stealing unencrypted files before deploying their ransomware. The ransomware operation then threatens to post the data on a ransomware data leak site if a ransom is not paid. It is unknown if the attackers stole data, how many devices were encrypted, or the ransom amount demanded by the cybercrime group. A ransom note shared with bleepingcomputer.com shows that the Kmart Windows domain was compromised in the attack. Kmart is in good company when it comes to falling victim to eGregor. Other victims include Crytek, Ubisoft, and Barnes & Noble. There has been no statement issued by Kmart, at least at the time of this recording. Speaking of eGregor, ThreatPost.com reports a ransomware attack on Vancouver's metro system and state that it's likely to be eGregor too. This is the second Canadian public transport system attacked in recent months. The good news in this instance is that while card payment services were disrupted for some time, they are now back online and it has been indicated they have no intention to pay the ransom. It has been reported by bleepingcomputer.com that Foxconn Electronics were also hit with ransomware around Thanksgiving. In this instance, some of the alleged data from the attack has already been posted online. The ransom note has also been posted with the demand being for over $34 million. The attackers claim as part of this attack, they hit the North American segment of the Foxconn network only and have encrypted about 1,200 servers, stolen 100 gig of unencrypted files, and deleted 20 to 30 terabytes of backups. Wow. For their part, Foxconn stated, quote, We can confirm that an information system in the United States that supports some of our operations in the Americas was the focus of a cybersecurity attack on November 29th. We are working with technical experts and law enforcement agencies to carry out an investigation to determine the full impact of this illegal action and to identify those responsible and bring them to justice. The system that was affected by this incident is being thoroughly inspected and being brought back into service in phases, end quote. So clearly no indication there that they've paid the ransom or that they intend to pay the ransom, just that they're bringing systems back online in phases. I believe Foxconn is a pretty large company, so I'm not sure if $34 million would be a drop in the ocean to them or not, but that's a pretty hefty ransom that's being sought by the attackers. And even though I fear this podcast is quickly turning into a security podcast, because most of the stories I cover in a week are like ransomware or 
breaches of some kind. I think this might be the last security-related story for the week, but the NSA published an article this week warning that state-sponsored actors have been exploiting a vulnerability in VMware Workspace ONE Access, Access Connector, Identity Manager, and Identity Manager Connector. They state the exploitation of this vulnerability first requires that a malicious actor have access to the management interface of the device. This access can allow attackers to forge security assertion markup language credentials or SAML credentials to send seemingly authentic requests to gain access to protected data. The NSA strongly recommends that NSS, DOD, and DIB system administrators apply the vendor-issued patches as soon as possible. If a compromise is suspected, you should check server logs and authentication server configurations as well as applying the product update. In the event that an immediate patch is not possible, system administrators should apply mitigations detailed in the advisory from the vendor to help reduce risk of exploitation, compromise, and attack. Pretty cool along with this article though is that the NSA have included a really nice infographic on how you should handle the threat. And I'll share a link to the statement from the NSA with this episode and a link to that cool infographic which you can find on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 154. On last week's episode, I covered the fact a new version of Microsoft's Power Toys was released. Well, another new version has been released, version 0.27.1. It doesn't have any new features, but it's been released because it contains five important fixes. I won't go through the list of fixes, but all of the described fixes address some stability issues like when using certain features, the application hangs, there's a memory leak in the fancy zones feature and more stuff like that. Julian Moore tweeted this week about issues with Citrix Teams optimization when using the Teams client in guest mode. The issue is that you cannot see other attendees' webcams or shared screens. Citrix and Microsoft are aware of the issue and acknowledge this to Julian and his team. He stated that during the holiday season, there will be a code freeze at Microsoft, so the fix should be coming around January 2021. To me, that seems like a really big issue to have missed. I mean, anyone who's joining a Teams meeting from outside your organization Uh, enters in guest mode so (laughs) I would think this makes running a virtual event or dealing with customers in your Citrix desktops impossible until this is fixed so I guess you better have teams on your local system and on the topic of Citrix they have extended the deferred time of day feature to allow you to better schedule when your on-prem Citrix Cloud Connectors update to avoid unwanted disruptions. So if you're a Citrix Cloud customer, you've got those Cloud Connectors, you may wanna look at this article and I'll share that with this episode too. And in a little bit of fun news to end this segment because God knows all that ransomware stuff is depressing and scary. I had the pleasure last week of checking out Chris Matthews' latest brainchild. Group Roomio. It was a blast. You should really check it out for yourself. So it's this web conferencing experience that's just like no other. Essentially, the web page that you're on 
for your web conference extends out just on both sides. I only went so far, I don't know if it's like infinite space or if it's not, but you can drag your favicon, your little icon of yourself, or if you're using your web camera, your little web camera self across the page, out of frame or to wherever on the page. And then the really cool thing is it's got this spatial awareness for audio. So it's like being in an office building or maybe at an event. You may have a group of people just hanging out in the lobby shooting the breeze. And obviously if you're not there and you're not in earshot, you won't hear the conversation. And if you want to be part of that conversation, you got to go up to where the crowd is and start listening in. And that's how this works too. So you can have a group of people gathered on the page or on the site having a conversation. Then if you drag yourself or move your icon further away from the group, you'll notice that the audio starts to become quieter. And then once you move far enough away, you just can't hear the conversation anymore. So you can have multiple different groups having different conversations in the same web conference. So it's a pretty new development, but already you can do things like share PowerPoint slides, um, embed YouTube videos, documents from Google Docs. It's really awesome. And because I'm a little bit of an asshole trying out the features, I decided to try and embed a YouTube video. So I went right into the biggest circle of people when they were speaking and I embedded the Rick Astley music video on Rick Roldan. And then I quickly removed myself from the group so I didn't have to hear it. So if you want to check that out for yourself and try it out, I'll share a link with the site. And hey, if you're interested, and you want to test it out with someone, maybe a bunch of us can get together and have like a web conference on Group Rumio to showcase the different features. Congratulations to Chris on yet another awesome product. And now a weekly webinar. On Tuesday, the 15th of December at 11.15 Central Time in the United States, Liquidware will be holding one of their unplugged events. This one is titled Predictions for 2021 and Beyond. Speakers will include Jason E. Smith, Jane Rimmer, Ruben Sprutz, Johan van Amersfoort, and me. So I'm lucky enough to be burning some time off right now ahead of the holidays. I'm unlucky enough to actually be on call over Christmas, so... I had to burn my time off before the holidays, but I'm going to be using some of my time off to shoot the breeze with Johan, Ruben, and the gang and talk a little bit about predictions for 2021. It should be interesting because I don't work for a vendor. I don't work for an MSP, a CSP. I'm not really a consultant at the moment either, and I haven't been for a few years. So I'll be interested to see if my outlook and perspective is a little bit different I know when I talk to some executives at these different vendors that my current employer is a customer of, I come away thinking, geez, they're such great big picture thinkers and I just don't have that ability because just when you're in the grind day to day, you can't really see the forest from the trees. But I do have an opinion on what 2021 is going to be like for a lot of enterprises. So if you're interested in hearing about it, please join the Liquidware Unplugged Predictions for 2021 and Beyond 
webinar, and I will share a link to registration for that with this episode, which again is episode 154. You'll find it on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 154 are usually within the description for this episode on your podcast platform of choice. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. On episode 152 of the podcast, I cover the fact that you can now use group policy to exclude certain file types from OneDrive syncing. Christian Brinkoff has shared a blog post on how to exclude specific kinds of files from being uploaded along with some other best practices for OneDrive specifically in WVD. So I think I said on that episode, one of the really great benefits would be say, excluding .lnk and maybe .url files from roaming. So check that out. If like me, you didn't get to see any of the AWS invent sessions, you can register today for a reinvent session from AWS on AWS AppStream version two. Personally, I feel like this type of application delivery is only going to become more popular, so it's one worth checking out. Devolution shared a really great infographic with the state of security for SMBs. Interesting tidbits include that global cybercrime revenue has reached $1.5 trillion a year. The average price for a data breach is now $3.9 million per incident. There are many more tidbits like that of information, but also some really handy tips for security recommendations, so check that out. And finally, Michael Niehaus shared a Microsoft support article this week that states that if you are trying to upgrade Windows 10 to the latest version, which I believe is 20H2, and receive an error on upgrading telling you that this PC can't be upgraded, the PC settings aren't supported yet on this version of Windows 10, this may actually be due to the default admin account on the machine. It's stated in the article that the issue is caused by duplicate built-in user accounts being created with the same security identifiers or SIDs and relative identifiers, RIDs, during the update to Windows 10 version 20H2. SIDs and RIDs for built-in user accounts are well known as documented by Microsoft and must be unique on a given device. To prevent this issue from happening for you and others, Microsoft have applied a compatibility hold on these devices from installing or being offered Windows 10 version 2004 or Windows 10 version 20H2. There is a workaround. If you've already encountered this issue on your device, you can mitigate it within the uninstall window by going back to your previous version of Windows using the rollback ability. To prevent the issue from occurring for you, and not receive a safeguard hold, you will need to name all built-in user accounts back to their default names before attempting to update to Windows 10 version 2004 or Windows 10 version 20H2. And this is because obviously in the upgrade, if you renamed your default admin or accounts and it's trying to create new default admin accounts or other accounts even, that's where it's going to hit that problem with the duplicate SIDs and RIDs. Microsoft stated that they are working on a solution and will provide an update in an upcoming release. In the upcoming weeks, they will also provide updated bundles and refreshed media to prevent the issue. Well, that's it for another week. I'd like to thank you all so much for listening.